everyone! Welcome back to the left page! I am Frank, your always online historian, academic, and writer. Today, we're gonna have yet another incredible return guest, and another on my favorite theme, so sci-fi and utopia. So please welcome, to talk about the wonderful 2312 by Kim Stanley Robinson, one of our favorites. You know him, you love him, it's Labour Kyle! Uh, I... There's a couple of podcasts that are that are like second homes, and this is this is one of them. Uh, Frank, thank you for having me on your lovely show. Listeners, thank you for having me back in your program to uh, talk about some terraforming and some xenogenders. Uh, you yes. know, two of our favorite popular topics. But no, I'm happy to be here. Happy to talk about Kim Stanley Robinson. Old Stan, apparently, as they call him. And yeah, it's a good-ass book. It's really good. I I had no... Well, you, you had suggested it upon the other stuff that we read. Mm. And I was like, okay, uh, it's a bit long. Maybe we'll have it for next time. So we did. And uh, what I what I knew about Kim Stanley Robinson's writing was that it was a bit too technical. It, it, it was a bit wordy. Mm. And I read it and I was like, I don't care. Yeah. It's really wordy. And I love it. Yeah. It has Kim Stanley Robinson is invested. I don't know. I don't know how many listeners are familiar with Kim Stanley Robinson, but he is like there's this sort of popular nomenclature for science fiction in the same way that they work with fantasy. They categorize it into its hard and soft categories. Hard being an emphasis on. Uh, exactly what you just mentioned, Frank. The tech, the asp- the technical imagination, if you will, and the yeah. sort of an, 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 a written investment in the discussion of technological change um, and possibility. And then, on the other hand, a softer science fiction is closer. Is in this isn't my definition. This is what people have a tendency to say about it. Is uh. It, it it has it's more focused on human stories it's less invested in technical minutia as one might call it and kim stanley robinson has a reputation for being the former but i think what's so actually special about his writing is that he kind of disrupts that whole paradigm in the first place yes. by weaving throughout a, what is a very like sort of technically descriptive work a very clear narrative with human stories and not just like it it didn't it doesn't exist in kim stanley robinson's work especially this one and i mean and i haven't read everything that he's written um but i've read the mars trilogy and uh there's this it's not it's it's not a polarity within the novel between the technical writing and the the more narrative elements, but they exist purely in conversation with one another and of each other's essences, which I think shows, well, I think what's most most important about Kim Stanley Robinson as someone who does write very technical science fiction is that he comes from the world of literature, uh, wrote his PhD on Philip K. Dick under Frederick Jameson. We'll talk about Jameson um for sure but like it, it it getting that out of the way talks about you know when you do when you do a phd in english from uc davis or wherever he where did he go? uc 
San Diego, I think. It gives you a, a, a certain type of training in the humanities that um, I think would be very disruptive for the the science fiction discourses that surround, for example, say certain, say more popu popularized science fiction that you can find on television or things that have been influenced by Star Wars, or on the other hand, um, certain figures who, God, I hate him so much, I don't want to say his name. It rhymes with Shmilan Shmusk and the cult of personality that develops from and around people I can only describe as capitalist shitheads because they offer no other redeeming value to humanity um, and, yes, in fact, exactly. are uh, holding back <laughs> humanity by being <laughs> awful shitheads. So uh, that's all just to say KSR as we'll call him, is a, is a good guy and understands not just what makes good science fiction, which is its descriptive power and its ability to evoke imagination, but how all of that is intimately linked to not just our humanity, but to the planet Earth and to our solar system in particular. Because it's important, and Kim Stanley Robinson has been... I believe from what I understand criticized for this perhaps in some ways, but writing very utopian fiction, despite writing very utopian fiction, Kim Stanley Robinson is pessimistic in comparison to other, say more sort of like nostalgia machine driven science fictions that are very interested in like hyperspace and interstellar travel. When Kim Stanley Robinson says, so we probably won't be able to do that. <laughs> Maybe in 5,000 years, we will have, you know, there'll be some sort of breakthrough that's, you know, not seen, like, like unseen from, you know, our perspective. But in fact, that, that, but that, that's the, that's the imagination of science fiction from the 19th and the early half of the 20th century. So funny enough, in comparison to say, like, the example that came to mind today was the, uh, I have not seen very much of this show because it's very bad, but The Orville is, it's a Star Trek ripoff show from Family Guy creator Seth MacFarlane, and it's on Fox and now on Hulu, I think. Um, it's very, it's not good. Um, for many reasons, the stories are bad, but the, uh, the main reason why is that it, it projects about the same, if unless I'm mistaken, I could be wrong. It projects about the same amount of time into the future as 2312 does, about a few several hundred years. And the type of future that it imagines, funny enough, on the one hand, is it evokes things like interstellar travel and stuff that, like, based off of you know, based off of more contemporary science, is less likely to occur than say solar system colonization and the stuff that we'll talk about in 2312. Um, yet, so it has this sort of like technological imagination that purports to be beyond the limitations of our solar system and goes, as they say, to the stars, to going to the stars being the sort of like, for lack of a better term, the like science fiction manifest destiny of the 19th and the 20th century, this sort of yeah. like, the, the very accurate yeah the fictions of like really what reminds me of like like jacksonian america 
the sort of like mm-hmm. you know the virtue the virtue of exploration and of moving sort of like beyond like systematizing your lived reality and then seeking to move beyond and through that lived reality it's very similar so so it's super retro while while purporting to sort of move beyond the limitations of the solar system but what kim stanley robinson does so beautifully and effectively is says rather than a nostalgia trip in a sense of like space opera as it's called usually or like the sort of like more popular genre fiction star wars-esque optimism it's actually reliant on you know it's what i I, what i wrote in my notes was head empty all vibes (laughs) (laughs) which is it's this like it's science fiction that doesn't have to think it's science fiction that like rejects contingent like that purports to reject contingency yet still functions in so many ways like like uh, like the sort of like freudian picture of the family is still in all it's all about <laughs> like you know reunifying this sort of like 20th century vision of what it means to be a family when kim stanley robinson is just like yeah you can in in my, in my book <laughs> like what what pick your gender <laughs> like there's 30 yeah. we, we got we, we i i've written about 30 of them there's certainly more and there's a whole bunch of different ways that you can do it and it it it's the recognition of contingency and, and we'll get into it but the recognition of these various contingencies and how science fiction universes are built um and the possibility actually becomes more utopian um and imaginative by placing contingency the recognition of contingency becomes a liberating discourse and like okay we to the stars is not within the realm of our imagination if we're really trying to imagine are we trying to and and it's i I think it's what's important about a novel that explores the tensions in sort of formations of utopia right that utopia is an unfolding process exactly by which we like our experiences and our effort is always like hell 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 can hell and heaven can always be born from our current moment and it's human choice and human effort that attempts to steer the ship in one direction or another and then i think it, it it's i think it's something that kim stanley robinson has said in some of his other novels uh which is that like utopia is always it's always here and never here and there's always it can always go one way or the other that the that no matter what things are things were put together wrong and we're just constantly trying to make it right and that's maybe what utopia actually is yeah like i i've been reading a lot of stuff and for my masters and all about like utopia how do you define utopia how do you understand and look for it or build it and like the, the more i interpret it the more i think about it the more interesting way to look at it is that it's like it's the horizon that you set upon you yeah and it's like you don't get there but that doesn't matter like it, it and yet it exists as you said in the present of like this this imagination this denial of the present yeah history it has 
utopia is something that takes history people think of well i think when you think of utopia we think of something that is a historical we being the sort of operative larger we because yeah. you know it, it feels something that has to exist outside of history either previous utopias have failed and a utopia would fail in the future something that they talk about in 2312 which is what's really great um like lit the characters literally have conversations about how to achieve some kind of utopia and these people who live for all intents and purposes many of them who aren't on earth at least live in a post-scarcity society where a lot of people are per basically pursuing artistic pleasure like nature walking and making art as a primary mode of living are still sort of are, are wrapped up in the contingencies of utopia as an unfolding process or a place and utopia isn't a it it, it doesn't have place to poorly paraphrase ernst block <laughs> um but rather is unfold as you're saying is is something that is it's constantly and readily emergent um and thus history actually becomes unbelievably important rather than something that like well rather than like well we would like utopia but history like no 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 like we we would we would rather utopia and history and then we have to fill in the blanks after that and as a novel 2312 which is in part a sort of like a you know an odd couple story trying to solve uh, a, a mystery stuff like that stuff that really like that really does drive the book forward i think there are some people who are probably confused by the sort of like pastiche modernism he talked about john dos passos as being a big influence when writing it which totally makes sense to me and i can see i can see how that could be like a difficult adjustment but i think what's so necessary and important about 2312 as what we could call future history <laughs> is that it, yeah. it 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 recognizes that in you're the first perfect person to talk to about this type of thing because it's a it's a literary motif but that takes documentary and art really an archive sort of like an archival sense of what the future could be and in that way it it, it it's a literary expression but it grounds itself in a sense of what historical sources and historiography, our process of interpretation could actually be, right? Yeah, like one of the favorite chapters is when it, it's um, an essay, I think, about uh, how did the various like periods after like space travel within the solar system became yeah. a more common thing. Mm -hmm. And basically bringing back that history of how those terms came to be, who yeah. coined them and why they popularized and our sort of. current moment is late feudalism, I believe, is what uh, is <laughs> referred to as, which is awesome. I think I thought that was really inventive and neat. The periodization, right? Yes, it's <laughs> and just like because it's a, like a histor historiographical question of like how do you define these periods? How do you interpret them? How do you look back and 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 even the present moment? And like it's it's a historical discussion about how do you write history in a novel about a, potential future yeah which is magnificent because it has all that tact is it isn't just like oh these are the periods because xyz no it's like this person came up with them when making those arguments and then yeah. like it just sort of went from there sometimes it just does 
And we come out with these various periods, which the one about the motif about like acceleration feels mm-hmm. very familiar as well as sometimes thinking about like the 20, 19th to 20th century. Yeah, it has like a, and in its, in its historical sort of construction has this, historiography has a tendency to rely on turns, which is like, is understandable. Like there's like, we have cultural and literary turns um we have you know a a, a turn towards social history i literally am walking backwards through them so that's probably super confusing (laughs) and annoying but the we have this sort of like we're constantly attempting to sort of academically or precisely i guess i should say in the most precise and specific and specialized language as possible too which is useful and good i'm not one of those you have like you can't use specialized language guys there's (laughs) We still have a tendency to try and like sort of period periodize historiography for a lack of creative and philosophical thinking. Sorry to any historians listening. I'm I am credentialed and as an historian trained as you one. You're more credentialed than me. Right as one. Like it is but at the same time we've grown very reliant on the formats of the sort of like the colloquial format and the format of the seminar that unfortunately not not only has popular history kind of left all of that like pop like popular his popular understandings of history and popular historiography as, as whatever degree that exists in the minds of people which isn't much like understandably um there's a big golfing like huge monstrous gap between what happens in scholarship and in the academy and that the, the sometimes only occasionally that is overcome i think we can all agree that that gap exists it just depends on how yeah. important you think it is and how often you recognize that it's actually overcome and it's not very much history the interpretation and the understanding of how history is written most people think of history as a sort of exterior object of human consciousness which is literally not how it works history would not exist without us there being there to interpret it and make it as such and so as a result history and experience is something that like it's been around for a really long time but it's something that i think historians have struggled to utilize in their work Uh, and i Hey, I'm struggling to do it. Literally, I'm writing a book about how it's hard to do that. <laughs> like, but, um, follow repeaterbooks.com. Uh, <laughs> but the, like, at the same time, we're always reliant on the sort of, e- even when we get into the archive, we're reliant on our own fictions, our own process of socialization. And the stopping point and the starting points and the spilling spillage spilling over of discourse into what it's this very messy thing that like is worth trying to suss out, but it's also worth trying to sort of like find its bottleneck and understand like what does history tell us about what it means to be a a person, you know, what and what is what can history tell us about what constitutes an emancipated society? Yes. And when we don't rely so much on fundamentalist vulgarity and thinking about utopianism and utopia, we find that 
finding utopia we find utopia in the parallax between the dominant and emerging social formations and past social formations too that's all present in kim stanley robinson's book not only do you have people who are sort of like clinging on to an a historically contingent evolution of feudal thought a, a re a reactionary reimagining of what they think this time would possibly be like not only do you have a, a more rigid capitalistic present that exists in the in the in the sort of like for lack of a better term slumification of the planet earth which is basically what happens in the book yeah but then you also have these sort of like merging points between these various discourses that look into the future so you have people who are who live in these sort of like mini biomes on asteroids people who have colonized um terraformed planets the book begins on mercury for example um who people who who you know, one of the main characters is an ambassador from titan for example um it's you you find that even in it like post-carcity societies the utopian society of the quote-unquote stars but really what it is for ksr the solar system that group is struggling against the contingencies of earth of them needing earth this the the thesis that goes throughout kim stanley robinson's work that like we're thinking beyond the solar system because it's easier to imagine that's paraphrased Frederick Jameson. It's easy to imagine a complete total apocalyptic scenario or to imagine beyond possibility than it is to begin to imagine what could be possible. And like, you know, like the, the, the famous quote is imagine the end of the world is easier than to imagine the end of capitalism, but even more so if we're, if we're like, what what does it say about the masturbatory fantasies of a fiction that exists despite impossibility rather than in affirmation of possibility right one is a complete negation of what's possible in just fantasy right which has its own mm -hmm. purposes and ser serves plenty of purposes in liter in a literary yeah. way like and it's stuff that i like and have read and have played and have watched and all that kind of a thing but the but the but is not pushing into the but but despite its aesthetic presentation is not pushing into the future but is rather reliant on the representation of a rather than thinking of the future as an unfolding possibility it sees the past as an ever unfolding present and we just kind of get stuck in this frankly repetitious and boring conversation about what we can't do um <laughs> And there's far too much urgency when it, when you take into account everything that Kim Stanley Robinson talks about, which is the intersections of uh, uh, the environment and uh, capitalism and imagining post-scarcity post emancipated societies. You find that, just as we were discussing a little bit ago, that what's most important is that these emerge out of these conflicts between the, you know, dominant and emerging social formations of this world one does not exist without the other and so therefore rather than utopia as an atlantis i just it was live i was live live i was on live agar's twitch stream 
and Liv was watching ah. a video from YouTuber Were in Hell. It was very good. Um, mm. And Were in Hell was talking about that was doing a kind of like history of new age culture um, and its relationship with like esotericism in the United States and did really good, actually touched very well on a, on a broad sort of range of historical topics, but that touched down on, and then this is, this is where Liv was kind of picking up. Uh, She was discussing how sort of like, the, the sort of like orientalism actually of those esoteric fictions which ended up be, yeah. really influencing how science fiction formed as a genre uh and that it was all like the a real bottleneck for that kind of literature is atlantis and utopia is this like reimagined platonian thing that exists in this it's the hidden wisdom of the East, but in this case, it's underwater, right? It's like yeah. it maps very, very easily onto, and all that early esotericism and stuff was just, it was just Orientalism. That's really, it was Enlightenment thinking with like racist thinking. <laughs> uh, as we as we made all those great, you know, scientific sc- discoveries about why people's skull shapes make them have certain personalities depending you know on whether i like them or not you know it but again so you have on the one hand you have this a we'll call it a social anti-social it is i've I've wrote about anti-social sort of like formations in music which i've always been attracted to those too you have these sort of like it's a sort of like anti-social esotericism that's like ah the utopia is hidden it's underwater and it's where it's the it's the sunken city of Atlantis. It's filled with gold or whatever. Utopian is the we're premillennialist. It's the 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 coming thousand on Earth thousand year reign of Christ. Like it's the it's the outside coming in, um, rather than something that is constantly emerging in the moment. Which you know, come to think of it, is a little like Unitarian. But then those guys got into kind of weird spiritualisms too. But like. They make sort of interesting transcendental points. And I think what's so remarkable about a book, like to try and bring it back to Kim Stanley Robinson, that's my bad. Uh, <laughs> Kyle, Kyle, uh, you, you come on. Like, this is all this is all part of the package. Yeah, that's true. I know, I know I'm, in a, I'm in a safe place. Um, <laughs> but it has this, like, it reinforces the idea that, like, utopia will only come from our history. Our history is always and shall always be a part of if utopia is at any point and it, if we've forgotten completely what it means to think in, in a utopian way, if it continues to reemerge in new interesting ways, if it becomes a major point of dialogue in our politico philosophical conversations over the next you know 50, 100 years or whatever, regardless of that, history is present and will be present and will assert itself in some particular way. So the the question that's raised by 2312 is how, despite this fragmentation that is the default mode of history, scattered sources, different perspectives, you know, different, like imagine, different imagined results, different interpretations of those results. People like it, people don't, good, bad. How how might 
we still continue to, with those contingencies, imagine a post-scarcity society. And how is that imperfect? But how is that? It's a... Utopia is an imperative rather than a place, right? It, yeah. It, we're imposed on by it as a concept. Yeah, I put it in terms that like you sacrifice utopia to give birth to utopianism. Yeah. And like that's that's the thing that I find genius about dispossessed and other twentieth century utopias that like yeah you you bring history like you can't you can't escape history uh, as we know and and like it, it needs to confront that like any attempt at like oh this isolated society or this other thing or this attempt at a, a separate community it fails in one way or another because history is still there whether they like it or not like history is still acting upon them even in semi-perfect isolation like they still carry that baggage they still carry all that that implies positive and negatively and to to attempt utopia or to project utopia as this separate thing as this cut-off object that will inevitably fail. And I think that's that's where the anti-utopians were correct at criticizing utopia as this project thing. But 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 then I think that's that's about it. Because then they go wrong in very weird directions. As in, oh, the utopians are violent and that's and this is all in the name of violence. And uh, that that it becomes quite laughable. But uh <laughs> It's uh, what 2312 does is it offers, uh, again, it's it's not a utopia, but it's utopian. Yes. And it, it's a continuation for uh, a utopia, f- in a utopianism. Like there's the continual effort and, and these characters like in very different, very separate conditions and even like biologically so. But how are they thinking? It's like, how can we make things better? And how can we work together to make things better, and like that's uh, I think that's the, one of the beautiful things about the book. There's like, yeah, it's uh, how do we deal with this, and how do we continue to deal with this? Like, it's we know things we want, and we want to work to get them or to get there. Yeah, the real, the real we of it all too is super important, and it does not feel neglected. Um the humanness of not just the sort of like unfolding projects of the book, but of the, into it's it, the history conversation is important because it then in, in then those interpretations of that unfolding process, it constitutes itself, but also complicates that sort of the, it, it, co- it complicates a popular utopian discourse. And there's another book, that we talked about recently that John and I recently talked about on profane illuminations um, that attempts to imagine a utopian present where the good guys won. And that's Carl Neville's eminent domain and eminent domain is written some in some ways differently than 2312, but that is similar in its mixed form pastiche neo-modernism that on the one hand will like at one point you're reading a primary source you're at one point you're reading something from a newspaper or an announcement from somebody or someone's email or someone's journal 
And at another point, you're following a narrative that's really a murder mystery. And that throughout all of this, it, it, it imposes the idea on us that not only will there still be, you know, sort of like struggle and conflict in the future um, or in a more perfect future, but that, that imperfect, that imperfection is a very useful demonstration of how that the, the utopian is the struggle. But what's what's less important isn't finding the perfect utopia, but thinking about what if we win a struggle, and that's what in eminent domain Carl I think does so effectively, which is build a build a world that has solved some problems because the good guys at one point won, um, and a radical form of social democracy emerged in Great Britain, and a new like. We were we were sort of gifted the future of new problems instead of gifted our ever emerging present like we have now, where the only thing that you can do is consume joyfully rather than experience experience struggle. And instead, it's a self it's a it's a struggle as in an operative like mode by which history emerges and is reformed rather than our contemporary struggles which are repetitious purposefully so and that lock us into fixed ways of not just fixed ways of living you know like our like the trap of income and rent and all that stuff which everyone can relate to but even more so fixed ways of seeing ourselves social form how out of social formation emerges a cultural rigidity or even a reactionary cultural formation that seeks to oppress certain types of people. And I think this conversation, particularly considering what's, what has over recent history been happening in both of our countries, but especially in the news recently in the United States, a lot of backlash against people who don't have cisgender presentation People, trans people and the role of educators who are queer in the in their ability to like just like the most tired tropic discrimination just it's the lavender scare it had a name we yeah. did it we did it already like mm-hmm. gay men can't teach kids because of predation this is this that was the most tired boring like rehashing of old ideas but for very specific purposes because out of a potentially evolved social formation that seeks an affirmation of individual identity rather in intense categorization as means for retaining a present or re-emerging the re-emerging of a false past and a reactionary ideology you know we should go be fucking agrarian peasants because it's good for because we should go read the bible in the dark and that should be the only fucking thing that we do with our lives like this is it's all it they're all intimately linked to one another and this isn't it's not it's not just so easy to say as like it's profitable for capitalism for capitalism to try and liquidate trans people because it's actually not that simple while that has, you know, 
while that will while that will take its place because the market will the market will adapt to sort of tendency and the demands of the social formations that are it's giving it it, it in itself is a constant emerging present it's through the it, it's it's through the sort of like fecklessness of those who do have power by which the machine continues to run rather than usurp their own particular sort of mechanisms of control in defense of the other with a capital O, they instead attempt to capitulate further into capitalist's social formation and play this kind of fence-sitting non-revolutionary gender politics if you're this is all just to say if your gender politics isn't in some way at least in some ways revolutionary then it it's it's not going to overcome the social formations that give rise to transphobia in the first place and so the any level of contingency uh, uh, any level that i actively place contingency on gender expression inadvertently has this this chain reaction within discourse that does not only nothing to change the particular conditions that trans people find themselves in but then ends up at, in some ways actively contributing to their oppression um yeah. this is all to say that like gender the uh, the emancipation the emancipation emancipation from our contemporary social formation includes and exists in it, it it exists in its emergent forms with our evolving and changing understandings of gender and that you can't really have one without the other and i think the re and I think this is all just to say that the reaction that we've seen to the progress the social progress made by queer people in our contemporary moment is a perfect encapsulation of why a an emancipatory gender politic needs to be in a book like this in order yeah. to truly as it's trying to do capture some semblance of the present moment and this is this is a book this book is 10 years old now but like Kim Stanley Robinson was right Ursula Le Guin was, was right in placing primacy on gender as this like emerge as it, it, it itself exists within this sort of vacuum of emerging social formation that is being captured by capitalist realism and that is if not actively then passively giving rise to its own reaction that will then get supported by capitalist realism <laughs> and will then give rise to its own internal present reaction and so on and on will go no one will be liberated everyone will be miserable and well you know we know what will happen to trans people it's what it's what the right wing will want to happen to trans people is that they disappear and that just that we can that that they can be pressed into the past again this is why this is ahistorical is because history is emergent 
And you can't, not only can you not re-bring the past back, you don't know what that past is. And your experience are relying upon the contingencies of your contemporary moment as well as the past. And so the sort of return to monkey crowd or whatever, I'm sorry, like your emergent emancipatory society will only exist in the metaverse. It is not going to <laughs> like, it is not going to be in our actual present. Like you can't go be a yeoman farmer anymore. You're not going to be able to do that. So yeah, I don't know. I think, uh, I think, I think it's, it's, it's obviously no accident, but it's probably the sort of xenogendered discourses present in Kim Stanley Robinson's book is not just what part of what makes it so great. It is along with a bunch of other stuff at the sort of core center of why it's a book that's important to me yeah. at the very least. No, absolutely. Because it, it's like, it's the possibility or, or an open possibility to the exploration of all that, right? To the biological, to the gender, to the sexual, to like, transhumanism a lot of the time as well yes and it's like it's it's a possibility that's open and like what can that mean and how how that can lead to this to this emancipation or closer to emancipation yeah how will people deal with that <laughs> in their own particular way um yeah. which is always the like we i hey you know i want to i want to know what like the healthcare policy for guy andrew morphs in the future would like i would like i would read that bill if it were legislation for example but that's not like that's the nerdy way to go about it that's public policy right what pe most people want to know is like how would people live their lives what would they do and like i think that's what's so special about like for example the ability of characters in this book to both father and mother children yes. um and how that gives it in and of itself, like, as, like, not to toot our own horn, as people who in general have, you know, who, who are forward-thinking on politics of gender and who have if understanding from personal experience of the sort of, the, of, of gender as a disrupt, as both a, a resilient reactionary force and a disrupting force by which people express themselves and are who they are, which is what's so special about people in the first place. But e even in that, even with that sort of political formation, you can still go back and read, and I've read, like I was piecing back through this book. I've read this book already, but I'm still piecing back through it. And I'm just like, wow, the gender politics of this book are incredible. And I love encountering it again. It reminded me of when I saw the most, I don't know if it was her most music, recent music video, but Arca put out a collection of songs over like four records, I think. And she had a, a video for two singles prada and rakata i believe are their names in which in the smack a gender those those videos are they're incredible at one point her body it, she's an android with a kind of like she's like a half ship half person with a a gigantic gun painted in the colors of the trans flag 
Uh, oh my god! It's amazing. It's the, it's the greatest That's thing. Perfect. Ever, it's the greatest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> at it one is. point, at one point, there's this cube, and uh, two sort of like they look like mechanical forms, but they're human humanoid shape are suspended in a cube that has like bullets passing through it on all sides. Encountering that video reminded me not just of sort of like the ever-present tension in gender that is sort of boiling over in contemporary politics that can be incredibly as we saw in the other uh, the other day in the united states and i think it was dallas there's a family-friendly event for pride month that literal self-described christian fascists showed up to in order to disrupt um and some who in hot mic moments were fantasizing about cops liquidating trans people and you know basically like using explicitly genocidal language and while that's a reality that we 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 must confront and it's more it it has become more and more central to the contemporary confrontation in emancipatory politics um recently than it ever has before well you know like more recently than since, you know, the new left, I would say. But it's also, it's not just about protecting the vulnerable. Because it's also about what, why people are vulnerable. People, like, why non-cisgender people are vulnerable in the first place is not because of weakness or pu- because of pure sort of, like, baked-in, you know, a, a misanthropic view of the world well we're always going to discriminate and this is the group we're discriminating against no they're discriminating against trans people because specifically specifically because it is liberatory in a social as a, yeah. so, a social formation that can seek to not just incorporate other discourses of gender into existing gender formation like me, for example, like a cisgendered gay man is capable of doing through things. You know, ex- the 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 best, the easiest example is drag, but I, it gets you know it's so much more intimate and sort of like personal and existential than that. But of all different forms of gender presentation, gender fluidity, and transgender expression, transsexual expression, all are within them. Within all of this is the utopian impulse, is the the idea that moving beyond one of the most rigid formations in human history around the sort of like the sort of like central emerging formations around the family, which have not always been gendered in the way they have. That's not to say that that discourse is rigid itself, but that a form of this it's kind of my a little bit of a Foucault inside that comes out of me it's a power now it's an epistemological formation that evolves biopolitically um mm-hmm. so it hasn't all yeah exactly it hasn't always been about you know man with man with pp and girl with vagina um have nuclear family with you know 2.4 kids and a dog it hasn't always been about you know homosexuality bad or about like and at, at some points, none of that language was used. We had completely different ways of even just talking about this stuff. But the point being that there's, like, we don't just need to move on to the next 
sort of like directly emergent social formation of our contemporary moment but can think beyond we can think a few steps ahead we're very smart humans are smart we can think steps a lot ahead. of steps ahead as this yeah, book shows exactly and innovate based off of the contingencies of our particular moment and the necessity of our particular moment and use that to jump to eradicate literacy illiterate illiteracy to 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 bring entire generations out of poverty we've done this is this has happened before in human history yep. we have changed the world before the problem is is that like the way that p human beings are themselves and 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 be the way that we exist is always going to like it, it, it's not just we can't just, you know, you know, I think there's like some people who just like, yeah, a revolution is going to look like 1848 or it's going to look like 1776 or it's going to look like 1917 or it's going to look like or whatever. As in like if revolutionary events were the like the work of like like it's all of, sometimes it sounds like people are talking about a video game. And it sounds like people are talking about like 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 these sort of like a programming language that reveals itself to you that you interact with and then at some point ends it's how i feel people talk about history a lot of the time it's like no there's a that that emancipation that history is the struggle and what we're doing in that struggle definitely matters um it's just a long thing to to like the the problem of gender is like I think I, I like, and I mean, it would get too much into the weeds, but I think a lot of what Judith Butler was talking about in The Guardian about the sort of like intimate relationship between forms of reactionary thinking around reactionary thinking around gender and then the backlash against transgender politics is incredibly fascistic rather than seeing it as an outgrowth of a social formation. It exists by by and of that social formation. We need to settle it more intimately within the social world. So we're not thinking we're thinking less about like one thing being the outgrowth of another, and thinking more, as I said earlier, a little a little more biopolitically, and how right. how we've grown our sense of control when it comes to the body i think the body is a big part of it because right what what's the conversation that the right wing is had the right wing is constantly making up stuff about how like who's getting hormones who's getting them when who's having elective surgeries when whether they like them or not as if we would be having this conversation if it weren't smack with gender if it weren't if if you de-gender that conversation and you make it about elective and cosmetic surgery about hormonal therapy or, or medical like all of a sudden everyone worships at the feet of the at the of the medical industry and and trust a lot yeah. of it implicitly now i'm not saying that that's a i'm not saying you shouldn't go get a vaccine i have lots of vaccines in me right now and have gotten more over the past couple of years as we all know but like at this at the same time there's only this like you have to you have to like i have to root for team medical or I have to root for team traditional, or I have to, and it's like, no, you know, this is people, these are people's lives that we're talking about. But the body comes so central that like, I mean, and maybe, maybe it's the, you know, I, I, I don't know. What, what do you think, Mark? 
<laughs> I mean, like uh, to 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 bring it together with a book, like the body is a central question, and even like in terms of consciousness and what is valid and what is sensible thinking. Like, I mean, that there's a reason why so many sort of like political metaphors looks at, at society are like, oh, it's a body, the body politic, and like that yeah. that kind of thing. This obsession with the body and like what is adequate for that body and what isn't adequate for that body and how that's a lot of nonsense. And like the, the necessity to like, yeah, but what would people do if they could, like if they had control over their body? Yeah. And like we see quite a lot of that in this novel. It's like, People get, um, they can sing like birds Uh, or, you know, like they just, they add whatever sexual organs they'd like or not or remove and have whatever like sexual or parenthood experiences they enjoy or prefer or would like and the possibility of of different relationships and different experiences. So it was like, it's not, (laughs) the, the, the emancipation is not necessarily... It can look different, but it it doesn't necessarily look different. It can look quite similar. It's it's yes. kind of the thing. Like I, there's something I saw the other day that's like, oh, that idea is like, oh, queers are destroying the family, and it's like, it's this. Well, what 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 what's family? What what, yeah. what are you talking about? Constantly it's about like uh, queer people, and one of them was that like, oh, queer people are destroying the family, and it's like. No, 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 we're not. That's that's not what we're trying to do, and like just like yeah, and I I like that framing as well. There's like this like no, we're we're not doing that. It's like it's a very specific thing. It's like on the one hand, like oh, you are all you people, you're all one thing, you're all terrifying and whatever. And it's like on one hand, like but no, we control this single concept that it is like oh, this can only be this, and that's all that is. It's like that's. It's the structure of the thing that is like, oh, this this concept can only mean that. And I think that's valid for utopia. <laughs> it's like, oh, utopia yep. is only that. And that's why it's not important. It's dangerous. Go away with that. And that's like, oh, utopia is over. It's the end of utopia. Utopia is dead, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, not quite. Um, the same way that, you know, it's like, <laughs> I mean, I was, I was having that conversation on the previous episode. It's like, uh, there are many, many, many Christianities and quite a few of them are quite fascist Um, and even the ones that aren't uh, can still be pretty horrible and authoritarian but there's also plenty which are you know quite emancipatory and you know we're talking about utopian possibility like uh, I I love uh, and block I love like Thomas Muntz's Mm -hmm. uh, revolution and and rebellions and uh, uh, what's what's the word peasant rebellions Mm -hmm. the omnia sunt communia like yep. all for the in property of the commons. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, like things change and things look different and things are different. And it's this various engagement of like, and going back, because I think this is really important and especially given everything that I've, I've looked at uh, at the US uh, with uh, a horrified expression and feeling and, and just how like this is not, this is not a side issue. This is present in like uh, uh, one of the most, I think that's uh, visible points of struggle or places of struggle and how, and I think you you really nailed it, Kyle, when you mentioned like how this is, uh, this emancipation is like, it's liberatory and it's, 
there's a, a joy there, like a joy at this liberation, this emancipation, even just like the example of, of drag or like, but even like other trans people's like this experience of like this embracing of joy in a sense is like with this identity or with the changing of identity, um, which is like, I mean, that's, that's one of the reasons we're doing things. We we don't want people to be miserable. Yeah. Um, so... Yeah, it's a. It's, it's hard to comment on all you're saying. You're saying, no, you're you're completely right. I think in particular about like the experience of like I don't have the benefit of the experience of transition. I do have the benefit. The thing I think that all queer people share is accept it. Like sort of the the not not this sort of like very shallow, blind, honestly very corporate version of self acceptance that's like finds the sort of like that zero is in on the particular self and then expresses that particular self. I think that's pretty fascist to be completely honest, but <laughs> like that I've talked about that on YouTube and stuff uh, about like the discography of Katy Perry and movies like pitch perfect and how like this, this impulse to express ourselves in like this sense of it, it's the empty ecstatic rather than ecstasy that emerges from struggle and like the word what's funny like i use i'm writing a book right now for zero about revivalism and a big motif is not just the raise universal raising of the dead which is a whole section of that book but it's just the very simple concept um the metaphor that i i was once blind but now i see which is something I heard a lot growing up as an evangelical Christian um, and something that I think of now as a much more powerful sort of sense of what it means to be a person. I've spent a lot of time as an academic studying the Apostle Paul or Saul of Tarsus as he once was, someone who became a different person and who essentially saw himself as a different person in so many ways that he was transfigured by a radical encounter on a road to Damascus. <laughs> he was literally in through struggle gave new body to the knowledge of his moment and used Christianity which is an outgrowth of, which is an outgrowth of t- second temple Judaism in a mixture of stoic sort of his greco-roman upbringing even way more Roman, I think, than people sometimes give him credit for, and use that to become someone new. And this was a radical spiritual encounter for Paul. This isn't to say that I, you know, I think Paul, I think, I think Paul wrote down all of his, you know, everything that happened to him and, you know, stuck it in a letter and that we've got the perfect, we have copies of copies of that letter or whatever. But at the same time, like, I believe very much in the, that experience because that's a universal human experience. Um, and what constitutes an emancipated society is our ability to, to gain new insight and not just for say someone who wishes to be a different gender than what they've been prescribed by the social world or by formation, various cultural formations within that social world or their upbringing or their geography or all of the cruel happenstances of life, but that through this element of difference we become something new and it is at by that point that we begin to become who we are and not 
we don't become who we are at that moment. When I when someone comes out, like when they begin whatever transition means for them in their particular form of gender expression or their form of sexual expression or whom they love or see when we start to talk about fucking specific when you talk, start to talk generally you immediately have to get into the specifics of this it's because the the sort the the bottleneck is through the idea of human experience and what constitutes an emancipated society in my eyes and in the eyes of a lot of queer people is that we can begin to become who we are we have not begun to become who we are until we hit a point by which we have a road to dem- it's it sucks that it's mandatory for people of difference if you will but it is you have your road to damascus moment and some it's it's big it's narrow it's wide it's rocky it's clean it has all different types of it's a metaphor for a fucking reason right it's not it is universal experience universal in its difference we we are celebrated in the multiplicity because we all at some point become something new and i think like it's what trans people have taught me you know it's what like allies in political these are my allies in political struggle not just as a someone who's queer but as someone who feels that i'm on the side of political justice and it's not just about representation or empty expression. It's about what does what could emancipation look like? And you know what it looks like? To bring it back to what a lot of we've been talking about with this book, it's schematics. <laughs> it's if you go to the if you go to the website, Orbit Books, for anyone who's following along, orbitbooks.net slash twenty three twelve. It takes you through the process of terraforming it's really i think it's the uh um i marked the chapter it's a it's a it's just a sample from the book um yeah starts on page 36 of the paperback edition i'm on and it uses that there are those trucks that have been driving by my i live in the woods (laughs) someone's doing construction i think on their house um uh on that website you can sort of walk through this i think it's really brilliant you can click through that chapter but it will like show in front of you using still images like the process of terraforming an asteroid that's that's why this book's so important and interesting and why science fiction could be so useful when it's grounded in our contemporary moment and it understands history like i mean frederick jameson would have probably hunted him down and killed him if he didn't historicize that's the like <laughs> this jameson always historicize always be historicizing is my paraphrase of another famous frederick jameson quote but like this is what this is what happens when you're paying attention is that you find like you find the universalizing points of human experience and you can use them to actually call for fucking political change. It doesn't have to be either empty expression or empty affirmation that our queerness makes us sort of a a one cohesive subject. And now you don't have to think about the subject anymore or you don't have to think beyond the subject. It's just all about like, expressing yourself appropriately within capitalism and then not being rude and then (laughs) and like and that's hey trying to express yourself in a healthy way and not being rude are two great things to do but we as human society can go further than not being rude to people yeah those are step zero and 0.1 exactly 
Ex- exactly. Is it is it is beyond the prequel. We are we have not hit like this. This is this is al- pre-alpha, like <laughs> emancipation. It's not anywhere near what we could be doing. And this is an example. Like this book is a much closer example of how an an emancipatory future unfolds within struggle and contingency and social rules and social differences and like the new world isn't just born right when the old one dies like one is dying and one is being born and they're sitting there and they're talking to each other it's always a conversation that if it okay so whoever makes movies and is listening to this that you should make that fuck it's i mean it's i think that's kind of like it's kind of just ingmar bergman a little bit it's a little it's a little playing chess on the beach with death kind of stuff but rather that's it you should write that book or make that you should make that movie a conversation between the old world that is dying and the new world that is waiting to be born. Yeah. See, this is this is the kind of this is the kind of stuff you get when you listen to the left page. Though your your number one podcast for uh, <laughs> uh Xeno Z- Xenogendered emancip- emancipatory utopian Munzerian communism. Uh uh, you know. Yeah. All in commons for, all in common for everyone. Um and Un- 32 genders unironically yeah unironically. Uh, uh, completely unironically yeah i, I think like uh, uh to to quote the book in, in uh uh in in another quote from a separate book within the book and one of the ac- various extract sections on always historicizing and like transformation and how you know and even like at the the death of the old world even whenever that happens like the ghosts remain. The specter yes. remains. And it's like it's. Um, I've, I'm taking a class on like science, history, and utopia. It's wonderful. And one of the many discussions is like you know people do tend to claim a lot like oh the end of something, the end of whatever. It's like yeah. do things really end? Has that really gone? Is that really over? And pretty much a hundred percent of the time, not quite. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> in bigger or small ways. Uh, nah. Anyway, to, to quote the book, out of this jumbled superimposition of different kinds of temporal models, history does in fact emerge as a work of art, like any other work of art, but made by everyone together, and it doesn't stop. Things happen, events, accomplishments, wins and losses, pyrrhic victories, rearguard actions, and though there can be crucial events, the plus does not end in a year like 2312, but rather several decades later, if that. That's the whole book too. It sounds like that. It's so <laughs> good. I just God, I love it. I love this. And by then, book. we don't know what happens in twenty three twelve yet. Uh-huh. Exactly. Man, it's good. Man, it's just good. That's the thing about the pro. It really, at the end of the day, I we come on and we interpret like we're doing. We're doing like we're doing like the real work. Like this is the real adult work, you know, of interpretation or whatever. But it's always really nice when the book's just really good. It's just a really yeah. good. <laughs> and sometimes I just want to be like, man, that's like that was a good ass book. It was a good ass book. Yeah, the, the book or the story that makes you like, holy fuck, mm-hmm. what was that? Yeah. Uh, uh, 
and to, to to bring back another thing it's like there's so much that is like yeah it's like oh this technical dimensions like oh the schematics and how do you do the terraforming and like how that is also like that's not separate from like the social from the individual from the genders like that's all that's all twisted together and like the the, the illusion that those things yeah. are separate and they can be separated uh it's a it's a, it's a pretty damn big lie when te- when you use technology to drive the conversation about like we live in a world of technique to borrowed from some philosophers i've been reading recently and it is this like that that technology and techniques are sort of imposing forces on not just like they don't just they don't just exist sort of in the rafters of the social world but they drive our interactions with one another and the way that we see ourselves and so like let's be honest about where we can like like i love the honest application of like how do we define the our contingencies of the future well it's definitely not by gender like 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 we're like it it's very optimistic in like this is what i'm talking about you know contingency as liberating discourse is because i trust i like i don't always agree with everything kim stanley robinson has ever said about like you know you know growth in capitalism and that sort of a thing we have the same underlying critiques and a lot of you know the same sort of proposed solutions <laughs> every once in a while i could you know quibble with a few things but what really matters is that like we can all recognize that it it is a it, it is a like it is an out of my cold dead hands that we're currently dealing with the type of gender politics that we that we are it is a real like that's why it's so reactionary and why people get so vicious about it and why it's they're so easily manipulated like not to not to get rid of their agency good agency or bad agency but why they're so easily fucking manipulated by right-wing politicians when it comes and right-wing media apparatuses when it comes to this type of a thing um is because it is like it's so it's so old school to not be to not have people have dug in their heels so heavily throughout even the 20th century and the like you know with like women's suffrage and like queer liberation movements and stuff like that that have always faced backlashes there's always been this sort of like dragging sense of like push and pull in like politics as queer people we experience this so we understand this that it doesn't exist on this sort of like perfect path to progress that's teleological nonsense however considering the possibility this is why critiques of capitalism are so useful is because it's about what is what about human possibility how yeah. like and how a post scarcity society would be able a post-scarcity society would solve a lot of those problems. The If we could figure out a way to build essentially a social services apparatus that makes red, readily accessible the the necessary medical interventions for trans people, like, and do it in a way that's, like, safe, healthy, nice to children that like seeks to like actually an an actually liberating social process then that problem like like no problem is perfect 
and no post-scarcity future is true utopia unless it is sort of unfolding in struggle but some problems will just some problems will just get solved this is be and and it's sometimes it's because it's being made into one through you know reactionary lavender scares or in this case you know you know pink and blue scares or like this sort of like really fear and it's not like i think what kim stanley robinson does so effectively is like we're brought into the future and and not asked like we're not forced to accept some utopian society that feels so distant that it's eradicated everything that feels human to us which but instead allows those sort of problems of like maybe we haven't seen true evil until we reach post-scarcity because there's always the discourses of need and fear right maybe that's where true evil comes from however more than anything we know that at some point we can liberate some parts of our society um and still encounter new problems that's actually like it's the idea that like it's the closing off of the future in that we can't not have problems which is probably in some way true it's that closing off of the future that feels so much more pessimistic than like yeah like we can we can reach the edges of the solar system and we're and still be human we can implant like machines into our heads and have full conversation and have full and they can have beautiful full personalities and we can have full conversations with them we can exist symbiotically in a post-humanistic sense with machinery and still be so human and is not the idea that i was thinking about is how remarkable it is and how in my opinion affirmation of our our ability to not just discipline the body but be present in our bodies that taking hormone that hormone replacement therapy is the idea that the shape of your fucking face changes in when you change is for some people that strikes fear i will never understand that not just because i'm like a queer person i haven't always had perfect i didn't know trans people any trans people until i got to college and i was lucky that was 2007 so and i think a lot of people it took them longer to meet trans people um or to meet any queer people at all really in the type of world that i grew up in i didn't know as far as i knew i knew queer people of course but no one was out um but like, if if we have to some if some authoritarian theocratic figure has to intervene and say that this isn't right, something that happens so naturally with medical intervention, something that happens so fluidly, it's just like the sh- if we can sh- change the shape of the body in affirmation of gender identity, like that's 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 the poetry of humanity that's not anti-human that is that is that is it is so it is so radical and it is radical in its affirmation of some sense of self and it's difference and variation Mm -hmm. It, it, it does and it varies a lot and it had like to the point to where our 
considering our technological progress, our antiquated medical intervention system of medical interventions is mostly socially contingent, but like there are like it's not profitable uh for people to you know create more robust medical intervention procedures for trans pe- for trans people like right now our most systems are have riddled with gatekeeping they're not efficient because they're riddled with gatekeeping if something is so <laughs> like those bureaucracies can only be efficient if you get rid of the profit motive well there's a profit motive in healthcare in all kinds of places like throughout the world um and so and and there's something that 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 feel i feel that possibility because we can see in progress um in social progress and yes some increased like increased access to legitimate safe and effective medical interventions for trans people like hormone replacement therapy also elective surgery and that sort of a thing the fact that i know i'm not a scientist i'm not a doctor but i know that based off of the sort of like the trajectory of our progress on this issue that like really the sky's the limit if it weren't for the contingencies that prevent liberation exercising so strongly and then the sort of the very robust reactionary apparatus that comes in and continues to push for as 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 a as a british fascist said on some fucking turf podcast that i saw on twitter the other day making trans people as having as few as possible instances of transgenderism which is uh, that's genocidal language because you yeah. think it's not they also that was the, the same person who said every everyone who experiences transgender trans has a transgender experience experiences transgender transgenderism is sick in the head as well well i i i um i can't help but think not only well, so, well, the most reasonable, this most seemingly "quote unquote" reasonable people in our society will absolutely um, perform genocide against people that they don't like. But that um, there, there's, there's, there's. Um, sorry, I, I got, I got, I got lost in a rage spiral. Um, oh, you want me to add to that rage spiral with yeah. something quite on, on point? Of um, Gretchen Falker, Falker Martin. Uh, today and this will date the part the recording but never mind yeah who is the author of the excellent still haven't read yet manhunt uh made a made a post on twitter uh, sort of in a orson wells kind of speaking uh, and i'm gonna quote here where do i stand on the on the what the transgender question well for one thing sir i recall the last few usages of that particular phraseology a group of millions is not a question I'm not a finished speaking, not a question, but a demographic. It goes on, but uh, that's uh, to exactly what you were saying on points of like how uh, a lot of the discourse on that is genocide. Yeah. Yeah. Denialism is genocidal because it either forces people into the closet, uh, forcibly detransitions them, which will just get, which will kill, that'll kill people, um, yeah. or forcefully represses gender expression either way is like like denialism is genocide because you have all these pesky trans people 
walking around saying, hey, I'm trans. And you go, no, you're not. Well, like, so you can't. So de- <laughs> by by virtue of this, the necessity of like trans people's access to certain forms of medical intervention in the same way that um, as well as trans people's access to just the overall social world in general. And that's what there's the universalizing queer experience as well. Well, it's the same way in healthcare. What if you were if you were a gay man, you had AIDS, you had AIDS or HIV in the 1980s, like you are dying in a hospital bed alone. Your partner yep. can't come see you. No one you love can probably come see you. Your family probably doesn't talk to you. So you die alone. You die alone. Um, and that was denialism uh in large part the denialism of the denying preventability is denial of identity um gatekeeping treatment for in or particular particular treatment um is denialism which is genocidal um it's all in the like either explicit or implicit desire for the extinction of a particular population um either through denialism or just outright extermination um the latter seems to now it will and now it seems like the latter will be relegated to the fry core for longer periods um because you know Regardless, regardless, regardless of your reactionary politic, there has been an increase in acceptance for queer people, including trans people, uh, among all types of people. And you can't, you can, you can, you can trigger reactions and you can push in new and inventive ways, but you can't universally turn back the clock. You can't make people unlove people they love. They can only either deny their love and desire for that person that they know that they care about. Or they find a acceptance within themselves and they make a change, even if that change is not perfect. I'm very, very vaguely gesturing towards my own family who like were viciously homophobic growing up, but who made a change when I came out because they had to because I fucking knew it. You're good people, aren't you? You're good people. You have some bad views and it, those views need to be confronted in a way that I'm going to try and do my best to not make you feel victimized. I know that's, that's hard for straight people not to not to get them to feel victimized about everything, but I'm going to do my best. I'm going to show a lot of grace and I'm going to make an effort. And I'm also going to recognize that like my parents are they're white conservative baby boomers. Yeah, of course they're they're evangelical Reagan Republican moral majority working class Christians. Of course they're going to be kind of homophobic. Let's work on this. And see if we can make some magic happen. And sure enough, well, fucking nailed it. 10 out of 10. Defied every expectation that I had for my family. But, and now, my family, are they still conservative? Yes. It didn't completely change their politics. However, there are some things where they're just like, well, that don't seem right. Now, it, now, now for them, it just becomes about what's, what's fair because they want what's fair for me. They know that I'm a nice guy, that I work hard and that I'm a good person and that I don't ask much from anybody and that I'm just trying to live my life 
and trying to be a good person and to do that in a way that makes me happy. They saw when I wasn't happy. They see how I am now. And they were forced to make a change. And it worked. And so and so that's the the sort of essence of utopia that's present in the challenges of gender and i mean not the challenge not gender as challenge although it is a challenge and we will defeat it uh but in the the challenge that gender presents to all people no matter if they know even understand who trans people are we are still challenged by existing social formations and gender that are inextricably bound to larger social institutions like medical like the medical institution, like government, et cetera, and that intervention on one of these accounts is in many ways intervention on all of them. And that rather than seeking to, that we must seek to ultimately sublate and not, not passively, but actively incorporate and give rise to sort of new political and social formations using all of this stuff. We should be intersect. That was just a long way to say we should be intersectional. I think it's yeah. <laughs> I, I think like then that's like one of the things that the book presses on so much, and like and, and that we have been putting it on, on similar terms. That like to to be f- fully human, like that's something that we've been trying to. And I in the cons like we too, as we're talking about this, like what it is to be human, and like how. In the present, like that's so. Um, there's such a, a not very satisfactory answers to it, and like this question is like no, but like this is not what being human boils down to. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't. This isn't. Then where can we find it? And it's again, it's like it's still in pre-alpha on it, on how do we understand what it is to be human, and yet there's. We we see glimpses of it. We we have certain notions, certain perceptions that are like it's around here, or it's closer to this and not to that. It's closer to emancipation than to restriction and containment. Right. Yeah. It 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 does what I think is important, and I think what I want other people to understand the way that we ta- have talked about history, not just on this show but in other shows before too is that it really is about what it what does it mean to be a person you know and then you can start attaching adjectives you know what does it mean to be a good person what does it mean to be a a a, a person worthy of love what does it mean to be um all these different types of people i'll probably we might we might get final thoughts after this i should probably start wrapping up soon um yeah, uh, it's uh, oh yeah, we 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 probably should. <laughs> yeah, but uh, it's no, it's it's just been a blast. I think what I think what you've so eloquently put in sort of your notes, you picked you picked the perfect quotation from the book. Um, <laughs> you really did the one that you read earlier because the the phrase jumbled superimposition of different kinds of temporal models um, is history. And yep. uh, just as simple as that, you know, that's it. Don't, we solved it. But but no, that's that's what history means. Rather than as like you know, there's the we can have the very the it's 
I think everyone knows that it's not just a basic assemblage of facts. I think that's how people engage with popular history is the 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 point beyond that and the point and up to historiography is the interpretation that most people are working with. I know that history is not just a textbook with a list of things, facts, names, and dates inside of it, but I don't quite understand how history is inter applied, interpreted, and how that is done in a large variety of ways. How, how do historical sources work? This is what I have hopefully taught some undergrads, <laughs> God bless them, the ones who especially were trying to, they, they, they struggle, understandably so, um, in the simplicity of history of historical writing in that i'm trying like we're trying to get you to be a better writer and to understand how to interpret and use primary source documents but even further than this then then you get the historiography more generally how have there been various turns and forms of interpretation in scholarship after the production of the seminar in the 19th century how have the uh, uh, lo how, how colloquium from from loqui to uh, speak together. How have we used have we used this to build certain environments for academic history? How have we used that to further scholarship? What does it tell us about the world? What does it tell us about how people understand the world? Have we changed them? And like all that is great, like and important, and we'll talk about it forever. But like. <laughs> Some sometimes we gotta just ask ourselves, like, what does it mean? Is history really what? What does history have for us? And it's well, a big part of it, it. It helps us understand what it means to be a person, which is not any one which way necessarily, but that when the subject, like that, that that examination and exploration of the subject can can talk can speak just as much to a drive for a better, a change in our social environment as descriptive or prescriptive diagnoses or interpretations of that social environment. And that your fucking story matters like in its individuality, in affirmation of sort of itself, it matters. There's this idea that like, we we can only consecrate our individuality rather than consecrating our plenitude and that that the point of consecration in our humanity is the sort of the 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 the, the this is sacrificing ourselves on the altar of absolute contingency absolute contingency being uh, what ultimately becomes a historical teleology not just in the sort of new historicist like watch out for that fucking contingency because it's going to make your scholarship you know like like we're going to have to call into question take out the Foucaultian knife you know that that like not just that but something even something much worse much worse than that rather than that as a fundamental critique which is important we we're talking about medical institutions and stuff like that yeah. of course new historicism is important as a fundamental critique of this but like of our inability to like like historians, we can't talk about ourselves. We're not good at it. 
some guys there's a book of a guy who just passed away recently and it's a shame it's a really great book he wrote a book called confederates in the attic and it's a, he is a historian who did some like travel writing and also embedded with like historical reenactors to learn he used he was studying public history in the american civil war but he used like lived history and the experience of history by like hanging out with reenactors um to write a really compelling interesting book that i read in college um yeah it's called confederates in the attic is the name of the book um and what i found remarkable about that is that like at no point did i feel like that book was trying to find the essence of living historically in that in affirmation of history as the exterior object but rather history was the lived experiences of people living historically in their present even if they were literally embodying characters from the civil war they were sleeping outside huddled in like cold weather in a pile and trying to be as authentic authentic trying to historicize as best as possible or freezing themselves to death where they would like rotate they would you know you sleep for an hour at a time and you sleep on the exterior in like a big huddle and then about an hour the outer guy would switch to the other side and then you would get to sleep in the middle for a little bit of this weird pile of dudes they would eat they'd sleep in tents and eat hard tack and like we're like disciplining their bodies in unnecessary ways right in ways that like people have done for a long time that's just like they might as well have been like been nuns wearing hair shirts like <laughs> it's goofy i totally relate to it you know like and it's goofy and i i find what i found most interesting is that he understood that it was not it was not through their reenactment that they were living historically but their humanity uh that they were living historically um everyone has something to offer to larger politics not despite their own experiences but in affirmation of them that despair is a universalizing experience and that struggle is that that true emancipation for queer people in particular but for everybody for all workers um does not come from the negation of despair for, but from its sublation and that that are that the joy ec ecstatic joy even that is experienced in uh in affirmation of say gender identity or in, in any sort of like you know sort of like the sort of like residual humanness that is kind of emerging out of our subjectivity that like i don't know if it's purely human i don't know if i'm really just like this weird you know meat monster that's like <laughs> like acting like a human but that that the human s the essence or whatever that kind of comes from our road to damascus moment that gives us new eyes to see um so read kim stanley robinson i think is the that's the, that's the bottom line man. <laughs> uh. read science fiction read, read utopian science fiction yes read eminent listen domain page read eminent domain read carl neville listen to left page do crime be gay <laughs> I, I i i don't think i can top that i I don't think I want to either. Uh, I was just sad that, in a sense, like what. To, th this is not very humbling, but it doesn't really matter. Um, what, well, the, the clear historical experience that like it, it is like why are we 
when reading, when talking about 2312, what is being important or what is being chiefly important? And like, why? I mean, like out of, and there were many things we could have talked about. We, we didn't talk as much about ecology or, or, or about mm. that, uh, which we could have. But the choices we made in the conversation and when doing this episode have been, well, historically uh, fundamented and like for really good reason and on what has been important. And in this conversation, in like what we're understanding and well, in a sort of, uh, shall we say, uh, a long term thing about at least me and Kyle and others as well, like this, why does it matter about like utopianism? Why does it? constantly matter to us like yes about, about looking at this present looking at the past and looking and trying to fight for this future and like that is in, in all of this history is constantly there yeah oof uh, <laughs> what, so what an episode <laughs> uh, <laughs> I love it yeah, uh, Kyle, where can people find, support you, and, uh, you know, give you money? I'm I'm at Labor Kyle, spelled the American way, L-A-B-O-R, on everything, including Twitter, YouTube, and Patreon.com, if you'd like to throw me some scratch, catch some blog posts and videos early. Um, it's always greatly appreciated. But yeah, you can find me at Labor Kyle on everything. And I will inevitably, inevitably, be, inevitably, inevitably be tweeting until my uh, uh, brutal death uh, at the hands of a, a large beast in the woods is going to be my guess. It's going to, it's going to be my guess. That sounds feasible. Sounds yeah. feasible. <laughs> uh, and, and you can also find Cal on Agab Pod, the only video yeah. game podcast. That's right. There's only one. There's only one podcast about video games. It's called All Gamers Are Bastards, and myself and uh, my good friend uh, K of K and Skittles fame um, talk about all kinds of video games like The Sopranos and Avatar and uh, East Germany and stuff. Really cool stuff like that. And only you can the best find... video games. Yeah, that's right. Exactly. Real, real uh, uh, A one video games. And, uh, yeah, you can also find me on Zero Books YouTube channel every once in a while. Um, making a show, talking to some, talking to some, I'll be talking to the author of Omnicide, a book about mania. Well, he also wrote a book, we'll be talking about his book about night. He wrote a two-part book about the, um, philosophical concept of night. Wow. Uh, yeah, the dark, the the darkness, the after dark, a philosophy of the after dark. I think is the the uh, subtitle of the first book. That's a magnificent title. Oh man, you'd like that book. It's really, really weird and good. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Great. I, I love like when I talk to you and others. Like I always come up with more stuff I need to read. And like that's that's always great. Um, that's what you want, right? Just, of course, like gotta gotta build that left page library. Yeah, up to the sky. That's right. uh, uh, so yeah, uh, go go follow Kyle. Go listen to Kyle wherever and whenever you can. Uh, that's that's an imperative right there. It's it's the law. It's the law. It's the law. And uh, and from my end, like you're uh, if you can, if you're listening, you can support uh, what I do. 
uh, you can find the left page, left page pod on Twitter and left page on Patreon, where I do well. I write stuff on, well, other stuff that I read that not necessarily makes it into an episode, and I do uh, another audio thing where I talk about writing from the writer's point of view. And uh, you can check out the most recent ones, which I open up to everyone, uh, where I talk about death of the author from the point of view of a researcher and a reader. And I, I really like doing that. That was that was really interesting. That's awesome. So yeah, uh, you there's there's plenty of stuff that we've been doing, and there's plenty of stuff that we will be doing again. Kyle will return. Uh, that's that's a promise. You know it. <laughs> the ghost of Kyle, uh, always right. haunt. Always haunting the podcast. Mm-hmm. Or haunting every left podcast, I might as well say. Yeah, I like to think so. Oh, definitely. So, yeah, uh, thanks, everyone. Thank you, Kyle. Thanks again for coming, uh, for indulging anytime. me. It's it's always fun. It's always great. Yeah, anytime, anytime. So, yeah, th- thank you so much, everyone. Uh, and uh, I'll talk to you soon. Podcast. <laughs> we potted. That's it. That's right. We did it. <laughs>